The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, turning in your copies of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And uh, while you're there, if you'll look at verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. I would ask that you keep your Bibles open to that Ephesians 2 text. And let me just go ahead and tell you that I'm going to refer to a couple of other texts. But I am going to do that. And not call you to them just for the sake of our limited time together in these services during this present distress. And uh, so I'll be quoting those for you, but you can, I'll give you the text and you can turn to them as well. Let me just share with you the pastoral joy. Uh, a, a pastor has a number of challenges and a number of joys, believe it or not. And, uh, but one of the great joys is the privilege to engage in that primary calling of prayer and the word. And I thank God for that calling as a pastor. And in that calling of prayer and the word is the directive, preach the word. And in that directive to preach the word that gives forth in a normal menu of expository preaching. But sometimes a pastor is led for various reasons to do topical expository. That is a topic and then go to particular texts to deal with that topic. And so I was led uh, at the beginning of this present distress to go to uh, seven case studies from the Bible concerning Christian and crisis, the crisis and the Christian. 
And at the conclusion of that, as a pastor, I had the opportunity to note a number of things. In fact, even this last week, another new believer I had the privilege to pray with. And uh, new believers coming to Christ. People that are being refreshed in their walk with the Lord, renewed in their walk with the Lord. Or as I said a couple of Sundays ago, realignment in their walk with the Lord. That this time has been used for them. So where do you go? I know some of you here are kind of, uh, you dwell in the land of Christianity 201 or Christianity 301. Uh, But these new believers and these realignments and renewal Well, I just really felt led they needed to be at 101. And then you who knew these sophisticated doctrines of the faith, I know that you know that you can get those things out of kilter if you don't keep the basic things right all the time. So I wanted to just come right back to this basic providential instrument that's been granted to us by God called the Apostles' Creed, which was initially unveiled in God's providence in the second century. Now, creeds, though, are not post-Bible. Creeds are found throughout your Bible. In fact, the Bible tells us to declare to the world what we believe. The word for believe is credo. Creed is what you believe. Credo is the act of believing. And so we have in the Bible not only the call multiple times, my goodness, four times I know of in the book of Hebrews, that we are to make the confession. Jesus says, confess me before men and I will confess you before my father. One of the very first creeds of the church was one that cost their lives. Instead of doing the Roman creed, Caesar is Lord, they would say, Jesus is Lord. And it would uh, and it would cost them their lives. But then there are a number of other creeds. You've got creeds in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy. You've got creeds in the prophets. You've got creeds in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. You've got it in Titus chapter 2. You've got it in Titus uh, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. You've got them in Colossians. You've got them in Philippians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1. You've got a number of early creeds or confessions in the church. Now, why would they use creeds and confessions? Because a creed or a confession is not only in the Bible, giving us biblical truth, but it is a distillation of truths. And creeds do three things for you. Number one, they are an instrument of discipleship. A creed is used to teach people certain doctrines around certain issues and to uh, give them uh, foundational issues to build the Christian life on. It is a collection of essential doctrines around some issue. Secondly, creeds are not only for discipleship. Uh, our catechesis, as we call it, uh, creeds are also there for uh, creeds are also there for uh, an instrument of confession that we in worship confess our faith together before the Lord and to the world. And in life, we confess our faith to the world. But it's not only a confession for proclamation, it's also a confession for protection. Because the Bible tells us that there will be the doctrines of demons, that Satan will in these days send false teachers and false doctrines. And almost all of the creeds that are post-Bible have gone to the Bible 
Bible to collect biblical truths to protect the church against false teaching, against, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christ or the two natures of Christ, etc. And that's why those creeds are there from Chalcedon, from the Athanasius Creed, the uh, Nicene Creed. the uh, and But the Apostles' Creed wasn't so much to meet an error as it was to begin distilling the apostolic doctrine of godliness in the new church in the new covenant people of God in the church. And it was there mostly for confession. Let me give you a third reason, though, for creeds, and that is unity. How can two walk together unless they are agreed? So we walk together on the basis of what we confess together in the Lord. And this 101 creed is the Apostles' Creed. Now, let me quickly tell you, all true Christians will believe more than what you find in the Apostles' Creed, if I can uh, kind of refabricate what one of the commentators I read said about this. And I think he's right. All, all, new, all, all true Christians believe more than what you find in the Apostles' Creed, but they don't believe less. They don't believe less. These are essential truths. Now, what's interesting, as I come to this in our second study, the first essential truth, which is absolutely essential today, is teaching about saving faith. What is saving faith? It is crucial. And it comes in the Apostles' Creed, not by a propositional statement such as God the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ, his only son, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead. It's not a propositional truth. It comes by way of a question. Christian, what do you credo? What do you believe? And you begin. I believe you can't be a Christian without saving faith. Harry, why do you have the adjective saving in front of faith? Well, here's my reason why. Everybody you know is a believer. There's no such thing as a non-believer. Harry, what about an atheist? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what? You wouldn't believe what all they got to believe to be an atheist. I mean, that, I mean, like C.S. Lewis said, I was the same way. I tried to be one. I just didn't have enough faith. I mean, let me just get you. I mean, I'll ask you, so where did you come from? Well, and then they'll explain evolution to me. And I'll say, oh, so you begin, there's this little cell, right? Yeah, and it said to itself, let's divide. Then it said to itself, let's get back together. And then, by the way, we're going to keep multiplying. And poof, here we are. We've got all of this now. After you give it enough time, here we are. So I said, well, look, I'm not even going to talk to you about all that. Let me just ask you this question. So and where did the cell come from? So you're talking about a leap in the darkness for faith. Well, it just it's just there. So you believe nothing made something. And then that something said to itself, let's divide. And then that something said, let's get back together. Of course, it doesn't have a mind, but it did have it did all that. And that's kind of, okay, I'm, honestly, you can't, you, you, I, explain to me the science that says something comes from nothing. Explain that one to me. That is a leap of faith. That's why you hear 
the cosmos books say the cosmos. That's all there is. That's all there was. That's all there ever will be. In other words, stuff just there. It's eternal. And therefore, it exists forever. Well, folks, that's that's a statement of faith. Everybody you meet believes, but not every faith saved. Let me ask. So everybody believes. So let me ask you a second question. Is every, according to the Bible, is everybody saved? I'm not trying to trick you. Let me try that again. Do you, do you, does the Bible say that everybody's saved? No. So if everybody believes and everybody is not saved, that means not all faith is saving faith. That's what that means. Now, you don't have to worry about that because the Bible's already said that. The Bible says there's demonic faith. The demons believe. They're not saved. The Bible says there's... T- Remember the parable of the sower? The rocky soil that believed for a while? There's temporary faith. And if that's not saving faith. There's man-made faith. There is... Um, there is uh, counterfeit faith. There is, uh, there is... There's all kinds of faith. Remember the faith, man-made temporary faith of Simon the Magician? It says he believed and was baptized. And just a couple of days later, Simon the, Magi- I mean, Simon the Magician hears from Simon Peter. And Simon Peter says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are still, your heart is still in the bondage of iniquity. He did not have saving faith. So I know everybody believes. I know you believe. I know even the person that says they don't believe believes. And I know you have to be saved by faith, but I know faith doesn't save you, but there is a saving faith that connects you to the Savior. What is it? What does it look like? Because it's really crucial because you're saved by what? Faith. You live by what? You walk by what? You want to die in what? You're assured with faith. So what is this marvelous, multidimensional, glorious thing called saving faith? Well, I want to dive into it just by going over three things concerning it. Its origin, its distinctives, and its blessings. All of this deserves much more treatment. I know you can give it. I'll just get you started. Where does saving faith come from? Where does it come from in our lives? Would you go back to that Ephesians 2 text with me? I tried to read it. (laughs) What I'm going to do, I'm obviously not going to deal with this text in its completion. But I'll tell you what I am going to do. I'm going to try to pick, pick, pick on it. And I got the pick, pick, pick. I tried to do it for you the way I read it. I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick and then I'm going to pick the first part of it starts right there in Ephesians 2 1 and you. In other words, all of us, he's speaking to every single one of us. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins and you were dead in your sins and your transgressions before the Lord. You were not only born dead in your sins, you then begin to engage in actual sins and were by nature. You had a sin nature that was dead in sin. In other words, you were powerless because sin's power had dominion over you. You were 
dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. You walked according to that sin nature. Satan called the shots in your life. He gave you direction and influence because you were drawn to him, because he gave you your message. It's all about you. You were born thinking it's all about you. So you gladly walked in that way and were by nature children of wrath under the wrath of God and standing before an eternal judgment and a place called hell and gladly walking in that direction in the impotency and death and the death knell of sin. That's what our condition was. Dead in sin. And how in the world are we going to be saved? You know, folks, this is not a prophecy, but let's say you died of something in the next minute. So I'm not prophetic on this. And I walked over and one of the many doctors in our church says, Harry, I know what they died of. You do? Yeah. Harry, I got the pill for it. It cures it. Here's the pill. If you'll give them the pill, they can't die from this. I've got the cure. I've got the solution. So I go over and there you are dead. And I go over there and I say, Sally, here it is. This cures you. If you'll just take this, would you reach up and take this? You will live. What is Sally going to do? Nothing. Why is Sally not going? This is not hard either. Why is Sally not going to do anything? She's dead. The cure is Jesus. But we're dead. We need God to do something so that we can take by faith the cure he has provided. That's why I love the next two words. But God. They're my two favorite words in the Bible. And you were dead in your sins. But God, being rich in mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. But God, rich and mercy, with the love that he bestowed upon us, caused us. It wasn't, but God, seeing we wanted to be saved. Oh, no. We wanted to sin in our sin nature. But God needed us. Oh, no. He didn't need us. God, rich in mercy and grace, loved us. And caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God until you are born again. Please notice, the Bible does not say, Jesus does not say, if you come to me for salvation, you can be born again. The Bible says you've got to be born again to come to Christ, because until you're born again, you're dead. You're dead in your sins. And he invites you. You may come, but no man can come to him unless the Father draws him. Out of his glorious, sovereign, 
unmerited, relentless, irresistible love. He causes us to be born again to a living hope so that we might be saved. How? Through faith. Now let me go to that third pick. And you, but God. Now, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Through what? Faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It, faith, is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his poema. I love that word. You get the word poem. It means royal masterpiece. You are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You remember in John chapter 6 and verse 29. It says this. Jesus said, my father is still working Well, they were going to stone him. And then they said to him, what works is God doing? And Jesus said, this is the work of my father, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, brothers and sisters, do you see this? You're saved by faith, but saving faith is God given, God designed. And God kept. It is from him. That's why Romans says, faith cometh. Faith isn't worked up by us. Faith in God and Christ as Savior comes to us. That we act. Now, God doesn't have to believe. We have to believe. Faith is our act of believing. But when we believe, what faith is an act that we are able to do because God has given it to us by grace. It is God given. It is God designed. It is God kept for our life so that we believe in him. That's why People said, well, Pastor, you're just preaching on those first two words of the Apostles' Creed, right? No, I'm preaching on three words. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in. I believe in. There is a faith that overcomes the world. And there is a faith That is overcome by the world. The faith overcome by the world is man-made. Temporary, deceptive, and demonic. But the faith that overcomes the world. Comes from God. Is nurtured by God. Empowered by God. Kept by God. By the grace of God. And to the glory of God. Well, what does it look like? Well, let me just outline its distinctives. That's all I've got time to do is outline it. And I want to outline it. I thought about how to do this. And I wanted to go to a text that I preached my second sermon. I'm not reworking the sermon. But my second sermon I preached as a PCA pastor in Miami, Florida at Pinelands was this text of scripture. It comes from the last epistle Paul writes before he dies. And and it's a verse I call a tombstone verse. It's the kind of thing you'd like 
written on your tombstone because he's about to get one. He is about to die. And when he writes Second Timothy, he says this in chapter one in verse 12. These things I suffer, not just stoning and beatings and rejections. He's about to be killed for Christ in Rome. I suffer these things. I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him against that day. Just jot down these five distinctives from that verse on saving faith. Number one, saving faith is a personal act. What is the one word that is repeated the most in that verse? Well, it's very simple. It's the shortest word. It's repeated six times. I suffer these things. I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Brothers and sisters, friends, hearers, seekers, listeners, curious. Let me hear me hear me on this to believe in Jesus is a personal act. Nobody can believe for you. Parents can believe God will use them in the life of their children, but parents can't believe for their children. Children cannot believe for their parents. Well, my children are all Christians. I must be okay. No, you've got to have a personal relationship with Christ. A preacher can't believe for you. The people that you sit around who are religious can't believe for you. The gate is narrow into the kingdom. You've got to go through it. And there's only one that fits through at a time. You have to personally commit your life to Jesus Christ. It is you and me. We have to believe in Jesus. There isn't a group plan to get people into heaven. It is a personal relationship with Christ. Saving faith is that's why it doesn't say Christians. What do we believe? It says Christian. What do you believe? I believe it is a personal relationship. Secondly. It is not only a personal relationship, it is a rational relationship. You don't check your brains out when you become a Christian. In fact, you've got to get sound knowledge to have a sound faith. You've got to have a true knowledge. I've got to know I'm a sinner. I've got to know I can't save myself. I've got to know Jesus is the Son of God, not just another man. I've got to know He became a man so He could take my place. I've got to know He died in atoning death. He is risen. And God has accepted the sacrifice. And that He receives all who repent, turn from their sin and put their trust in him. I've got to know those things. I've got to know them. I've got to got to know those things so that I can know him. I know he says this. I suffer these things because I know knowledge rational. The mind is engaged in saving faith. Thirdly, not only the mind, but the heart is engaged because conviction is required in saving faith and that you are convinced. Notice that he doesn't just say, I know personal, I know rational knowledge, mind. Then he says, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. There is conviction in the soul. I am convinced in my soul. It's not only my mind, it is my thinking heart as well. I am convinced of it. I know it. I know and I am convinced that he is able. Number three, number four, not only is it personal, rational, emotional, not I 
and uh, know and convince. But number four, it is volitional. It is an act of trust. I suffer these things. I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Him alone. So you walked in the back door. And as you got in the back door, you said to you, whoever was with you, let's go sit down. In what? A pew. And then you said, I wonder which pew's open. Which one doesn't have one of those chocolate ribbons? And you picked it out. And you looked at it. I personally know that's a pew. Honey, I'm convinced it's a pew. Emotionally, I'm transparent. Honey, I know I'm convinced, mind, heart, look, this is pew. It's got pewness all around it. This is a pew. But when do we know that you personally know and are convinced that's a pew? When you rest. And some of us have considerable more to rest than others. When you rest on that pew, you trust it to hold you. I know, convinced, that I can put my soul and life on Jesus. He is able. He is able. That brings me to number five. Rational, personal, rational knowledge, mind, emotional, conviction, heart, volitional, trust, will, Fifthly, directional. You only got one place, saving faith. Saving faith can't go to the church, can't go to Pastor Reader, can't go to your daddy and mama, can't go anywhere else. You got to put your personal trust in Christ. Know what Jesus said. I suffer these things and I am not ashamed for I know. Somebody give me the next word. Whom? Not what? Do you think Paul had a pretty good grasp of theology? Well, so does Satan. The reason what's important is because the what brings you to the who. And that's where he put his trust, not in his what, but in his who. Notice he didn't say, I know that I believe. He didn't put his faith in faith. He knew faith was the instrument, not the object. He didn't say, I know that I believed. Notice he didn't say, I know when I believed. I remember when I was growing up and a person would make a commitment to Christ and almost all counselors would say, okay, take out a piece of paper, write the date where you gave your life to Jesus, fold it up, put it in your wallet. And anytime you have a doubt, reach in, pull out your wallet and say, look, there's the date. I don't have any doubts that I'm saved. Now, folks, I understand. I'm not being a curmudgeon on this thing. I understand what people are trying to do there. And I, and I, I, and I, and yes, assurance is part of the gospel. The Bible says these things have I written that you might know that you have eternal life. But what is it that gives you knowledge? Not by confidence in your faith, that I believe. Not by confidence in your theology, what I believe. Not by, and that you can recite it. And not by confidence in your conversion experience, when I believe. Here's what you open up. You open up the Bible, not your wallet. And the Bible tells you whom you have believed. I know whom I have believed. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. A person-to-person relationship. 
with Jesus Christ. Saving faith is personal, rational, knowledge, emotional, conviction, volitional, trust, directional. Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus my baptism. Jesus alone. And what are the blessings that come from it? Well, let me just enumerate a couple and then I'll close in prayer. Enumeration number one. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. What is, what's new for you once you become a creation? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Behold, I make all things new. What's now new once you by faith are in Christ and Christ is in you? Here's what's new. Number one, you got a new heart. Do you know that every one of you here that know Jesus Christ are not survivors, thrivers from a heart transplant surgery? Your old heart was cut out and thrown away and a new heart was given to you that is soft in the hands of Jesus. You have a new heart in Christ. You don't have two hearts. You've got a new heart. The old heart's cut away. You've got a new heart that is in Jesus Christ. You have been born again. Regeneration. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Number two, you've got a new record. You've got a brand new record in Jesus Christ. Your old record was one of sin. Your new record is one of righteousness. Here's what happened. Here is Harry Reader. He's a sinner. Here's the record of his life. See, sin. Oh, I have sin and thought, word, and deed in all of my life. Then I hear and I'm convicted I'm a sinner. And I hear about Jesus, who he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf. God imputed my sin to Jesus and Jesus paid for my sins. So I am cleansed by his blood. My sins are washed away. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. As far as the east is from the west. I am forgiven. So hell has no terror. But that doesn't get me to heaven. Because heaven's not for the forgiven. Heaven's for the righteous. But praise God, that's not all that Jesus did. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's Jesus' life, righteousness. My sin he took and paid for. His righteousness got imputed to me. And every time God the Father looks at me, what does he see? I am accepted in the Beloved. I've got the perfect righteousness of Christ. So my verdict is not at the bar at the day of judgment. The verdict we hear is not forgiven, pardon, not guilty. Here's what we hear. Innocent. Wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And God not only cannot and will not send me to hell... Jesus has already taken it. He must, out of his love, bring me into eternity because I am accepted in the beloved. I got a new record. I not only have a new heart and a new record, I've got a new family. I have been adopted. Not only is there regeneration, justification, there's adoption. Now, God is my father. His people are my family, brothers and sisters. And not only that, fourthly, I've got a new life. It's called sanctification. I've been set apart to grow in grace for Jesus. 
So praise God, sin's power has been broken. I've got a new heart. Sin's penalty has been eradicated. I've got a new record. Sin's position has been removed. I've got a new family. Sin's practice is being eradicated and erased. I've got a new, I've got a new, uh, a new life. And God's not through yet. I got a new home. Glorification. I'm headed home. He's gone away to prepare a place for me so that where he is there, I can be with him. So can you if you are in Christ. And folks, this means so much more than what I can give now. But let me just simply say this to you. Say that all of those things are crucial ministries of God, the Jesus, the Redeemer through the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. But I hear people think the gospel is one of those. No, no one of those is the gospel. All of those is what Jesus has done so that you can hear the gospel. And here's the gospel. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. Union with Christ. I am his. He is mine. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. That's why all of those blessings are precious because they have brought you to Christ and Christ to you and you are in Christ. And that is the hope of glory. That's the blessing that's yours. So here's the takeaway. The takeaway, of course, uh, let me remind you something I just said. There is a faith that overcomes the world. That's a God-given, God-kept, and God-nurtured faith. And there's a faith that is overcome by the world. That's a man-made faith. All of us are believers. The question is, do we have saving faith or a deceiving, demonic, temporary, condemning, counterfeit faith? But if you've got saving faith, here's how I would sum it up for you, where one of my mentors helped me years ago. Saving faith in Christ is not the act of a moment in life, but the acquisition of a lifestyle for life. And Christ is your life. Saving faith is not the act of a moment. You sign a card, you make a decision. That may be part of it. Saving faith is not the act of a moment in life. It is the acquisition of a life that gives gives vent to a lifestyle. And that is in Christ and for Christ. Jesus has come here 2000 years ago for you. He went to the cross for sinners like you and me, and he died for you and me. And he paid the penalty. Our saving faith is not perfection. It's perseverance. Our saving faith is not picturesque, but it is persistent. Spurgeon one time answered this question when he was asked. They said to him, they said, Spurgeon, there's a man we've been praying with and bringing to church. He's a derelict, lives on the street. He went to the mourner's bench and prayed. Do you think he was really saved? And here's what Spurgeon said. I cannot. I pray so. But I cannot ascertain in a moment what it will take his life to reveal. It is not the way he lives his life saves him. It is those who are saved have a new life, a new heart, a new record, a new family, a new life, a new home. Growing in grace, not sinless, but sinning less and growing in the love of Christ. Who saved us. Don't you love that moment on the cross when Jesus said. 
It is finished. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. No, he's not finished. You're his workmanship. You're the royal work of his grace. And he has saved you by the faith he gave to you. That is now focused and fixed on him. And there is no one who can stand against you. No condemnation that can stand. No charge that can stand. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Saved by faith. From Christ. In Christ. Kept by Christ. Blessed assurance. Let's pray. Let me ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart in just this moment. Dear child of God that knows Jesus, I've prayed so much that this would be an encouraging word. That you would see how much your God has loved you and what he's done for you and what he has done to join you to his son by the power of the spirit. And how you can now walk in that saving faith. And if Jesus tarries, you would meet him as you die in faith. All the while having the assurance of a Christ-given saving faith. And if you're here today, you're seeking, you're curious. Then I offer you this Jesus who says to you, come to me. I will in no wise cast you out. Come to me. I will give you rest. Jesus, thank you for our moments together. Speak, Spirit of God. While we praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.